Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by Pastor Kevin Kelts. This morning, we're so glad that you guys are here. Uh, We are going to continue the series that we've been going through called You're Not Far. Everybody say that with me. One, two, three. You're not far. One more time. You're not far. I'm glad you guys are awake with me. Uh, If you do have your your phones this morning, please get on Facebook, check in. Uh, When we do that, we're doing great things with uh, partnering this morning with uh, Help Build Schools. So you can hashtag uh, hashtag bricks for schools. And so check in this morning, uh, share um, our live feed going on right now. I never know who's going to pop on and, and hear something that is encouraging to them. That's our, our job as Fivefold Ministry Gifts is to equip the, 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 the church for the work of the ministry. And part of doing that is to be edifying. You need to come into this house. And when you leave, you don't need to feel torn down. You need to feel recharged. You need to feel built up. And so uh, that's that's our goal this morning. Um, we have been going through this series, and Pastor Jared and I were talking this last week about how I hope for you guys, but for even Pastor Jared, the book of Mark has really come alive like it just never has been before. We are going through the gospel of Mark, and, and in doing this, um, there are just some things that we're really going to kind of play it like through a movie. Like you'd be able to see what actually happened and hopefully get some more perspective uh, to how to properly uh, apply this, this word to your life. Something that I, I want to say right off the front is going off of even what Pastor Jared was saying in worship, uh, that last song. Something that I have noticed on my journey of faith, which has been a long, long, long time now, and even as a leader in helping others through their journey of faith, I've learned and found out and even noticed that faith often deteriorates when our circumstances deteriorate. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Have you ever lived that before where, you know, when it seems like everything's going good and everything's agreeable, man, we can shout loud and we can represent and we are just full of faith. But when our circumstances deteriorate, oftentimes we lack confidence in God. Our, our, our confidence in God is going to rise and fall with the circumstances of life. When bad things happen to us, when unexpected circumstances happen in our lives in those moments, very quickly what I have noticed is that my, my assurance and that my faith is replaced with fear. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? And all of a sudden, that fear, it does a strange thing to each one of us where all of a sudden we become somebody who is now a fortune teller. Fear makes us all fortune tellers of gloom and doom, where we knew what we thought the future was going to hold. Now we have no idea. In fact, we may have a little bit of an idea. Our fortune telling now says that it's all going to be bad and it's all going downhill. I think we can all relate to this, especially this year, 2020. Wow, 
it has hit us really, really hard, and it has impacted our lives in so many different ways, you know, and I'm, I'm in my 40s, and in my over 40 years, I never thought we'd face something like we're facing. We've never been here before. My wife is a school teacher, and the way that they're having to open up schools and do school is like we've never had to do it before. And so there's all these new things that we're having to relearn and we're having to adjust. And, and um, it, it just hits us. It hits us really hard. And when our circumstances deteriorate, many times our faith deteriorates with it. And before we know it, our fear is what's leading us, and it's dictating what we're thinking, and it's predicting that gloom and doom. In fact, I think all of us have been dealing with a little of this lately, right, with what we're going through. And, and who can blame us? I mean, because everything has changed, then all of a sudden your perspective changes. And, and what you thought was so, so sure about your future your future has changed. The future of your family has changed. Oh, no. Now it seems like the future of my finances have changed. And while it would be easy for me as your pastor, as this awesome man of faith, to stand up here this morning and say, church, just believe. Come on. Just believe. Hang on. We're going to get through this. You're going to be okay. God's going to be faithful. Sing the song. We know. And, and, and that may bring you a little hope this morning to know, you know, a lot of you guys have been with the church for a while and you've heard my story. You know that I do have perspective, that I have walked through some things and to believe God to be ultimately faithful. I think it's going to help you a lot this morning to actually hear from somebody who walked with Jesus. I'm talking about over 2,000 years ago, this man, he was face-to-face with the Son of God on this earth. He lived life with him. He experienced life with him. And there were some circumstances that came up in his life. And I think if Simon Peter were here today, he would tell us exactly, exactly what to do with a word of encouragement. He would tell us exactly how to respond. And we're going to talk about that in just So, everybody say, you're not far. We're in part six of you're not far, and this is Simon Peter's account, his real life experience with Jesus, and he's telling it to his traveling companion who had been with him for several years, uh, John Mark. John Mark is writing this down. That's how this information comes to us. We, We always say every week, please understand that in no way did John Mark think he was writing down the Bible because that idea didn't even exist yet until another 300, 400 years later, right? In no way did the Apostle Peter, when he has now been traveling for 35 years after the death, burial, and resurrection, he's been traveling and talking about his, his instances and experiences with Jesus and the teaching of Jesus. From town to town, he's telling people these things. At no, no moment in his mind did he stop when he was telling. He, he couldn't read or write, so he had to get somebody else to do it. John Mark could, and when he's, he's dictating this to him, and no, there's no, not even in his mind that this would become one day what we call the Word of God, the Bible. Y'all understand that, right? What was it? It was just Peter telling his real-life experience, his real-life encounters with this rabbi from Nazareth. And so after 35 years of doing that, from going from town to town and sharing the stories and sharing his experiences and sharing the teachings 
of Jesus. And now a lot of those that he walked with, those other disciples, they've been murdered. They've been killed for sharing these stories and for trying to write these things down and share with other people because they're living in that time. Remember, this is over 2,000 years ago, and they're living under the Roman Empire. It's their land. It's what they've had for generation after generation after generation. It's just been taken over by Rome, and they don't like this at all. And so he sits down and he starts to tell Mark, John Mark, of all of these stories about where he was and what he did. And even after losing his friends and even after going through everything that he's gone through, 35 years later, he's, he's in his mid-50s. And Simon Peter still believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He still believes that Jesus is his Messiah. And right out of the gate, as we jump into what comes to us as the Gospel of Mark, Pause for just a second and remember, the first readers that would get this, did not. it didn't come to them as the Bible. It didn't come to them as the Gospel of Mark. It just came to them as somebody took it and copied it and shared it with somebody else illegally under the Roman Empire in that day. But that's just kind of cool to think about. And so it comes to us as the Gospel of Mark, and at the beginning, he just starts telling us, he's like, he's, he's t- telling Mark, He's not telling us. He's telling, Peter is telling Mark that everywhere that we went and everywhere that we'd go from town to town as I walked with this rabbi from Nazareth, he constantly preached the same message. And here's the message. It's in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. If you have your Bibles today, I ask you to highlight this. But he said that this was Jesus' consistent message everywhere that he went. The time has come. In other words, the wait is over. It is now. The kingdom of God, Jesus would say to people, has come near, which means that you're never far. That's where we get the title of this message. And then he says this, repent, not to us, but to the people that he was going, Jesus from town to town, mostly it was Jewish people, and he would look at them, and we've learned that the word repent, right, is not what we always thought it meant right there, because he's not saying it to us, it's metanoia, it means to literally change your mind. He would look at them and say, everything that you've always thought you knew about the kingdom of God that was coming, you need to change your mind because it's not going to look anything like that. He says, repent and believe this good news because it was good news. He was telling them God has done something brand new. And friends, I'm inviting you to be a part of this. Now, if you've been following this series, you'll know that previously on You're Not Far, we've been looking at a map, and I'll put the map up on the screen for you guys this morning. As you can see, what we would call the Holy Land. It's Jesus and his disciples. You can see on the screen up there at the very top in the north, you'll see that now Jesus and his disciples have left that area of Caesarea Philippi, okay, and they've began to make a journey. It is a very long journey because they didn't have cars back then. They didn't have planes back then. They didn't have ATVs back then. What did they have? Mules and donkeys and uh, oxen, and they had their feet, and they didn't have Air Jordans. They just had sandals, and some of them didn't even have sandals. If I could get that up here, that would be awesome, this, this map. So what happens is they start going all the way from the north, and they start walking down south, and they are going to go through 
the uh, area of Galilee. And they are going to finally go through Judea. And they, when they get through Judea, they are going to get down to Jerusalem. That is ultimately their goal as they are walking, okay? Why are they going to Jerusalem? All the way down here, there's Jerusalem. So they started way up here in Caesarea Philippi. They're going through Galilee. They get all the way down to Jerusalem. Why? It's because there is a special thing happening in the Jewish community. Now, it's not that big of a deal to us as we read it because we, none of us were raised Jewish. And this isn't, isn't our custom. But what was happening is they're going to celebrate the Passover. And this was like the Super Bowl to them. This was everything. It was, it was where they had come from. It was celebrating how God had miraculously sent the deliverer. Who, what was his name? Moses, right? To set their people free from the captivity of Pharaoh. This was a big deal. And as they are traveling, you'll remember from last week when Pastor Jared was sharing with us that Jesus, he flips the authority paradigm over. Uh, and, and now he says to them, guys, you need to understand as far as authority goes, he says everybody else in the world, how they have managed authority, how people have taken their power and their resources, basically leveraging their power and their resources and authority to gain more power and resources. And they're like, yeah, yeah, we know that's how it is. We know that's how Rome has had us under their thumb for generations and generations now. And Jesus looks at them, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 10, verse 43. And he says this, not so with you. That's not how it is in this kingdom. This kingdom that I have come to establish, I am not going to abuse and use authority at all like that. I'm not that kind of, 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 of a king. And then he says this, for even the son of man, which is a messianic term, he's declaring to them that he is the son of God, that he is the Messiah. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be Serve. So the point that he's making is, guys, in this kingdom, if, if y'all would look at to me as the ultimate authority because I'm the son of God and I haven't come to be served, he says, who do you think you are? Because Jared, Pastor Jared shared with us last week how some of the disciples ran up to him and they said, we want to be first and we want to sit at your left and we want to sit at your right. And he's like, that is not what this type of kingdom is. And he continues and he says, uh, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And he says this, and this was really hard for them to, to embrace. It's not hard for us, but it is far, hard for them. He says, and to give his life as a ransom for, and this is the word, many. Everybody say many. That, that was hard for them because they believed that when Jesus came, it was political for them. They believed these Jewish people that he didn't come for many. He came for the Jews. And he politically, this is why uh, we'll talk about it later on. Judas, one of the disciples, he put all, he, he went all in on this. And he was sick and tired of being sick and tired and being under the, the rule and the thumb of Rome and this evil Caesar. And the world needed to change. And, and, and if he's in charge, we need somebody else in charge. And the only way that that happens is getting authority and gaining power and doing that politically. And this is a guy who has signs, wonders, and miracles. We can get behind this guy. He can do some Moses-type stuff. He can part some waters, right? He can, he can take out everybody 
except for us, put us up. And when he said many, it was offensive to them. What do you mean for many? What do you mean? What was going on? They might have kind of grabbed onto it a little bit because everywhere that he went, the crowds were growing. So they're they're on this pilgrimage all the way down walking to Jerusalem. And as they go, the crowd gets bigger. The followers get bigger. And they may think, okay, well, maybe the many he's talking about is all of us Jews because there are a lot of us. So as they go, they're walking, and, and, and now rumors start to be passed in the crowd about, listen, there's a guy that all of us know. He's one of us, and his name is Lazarus. He was dead. Jesus raised him from the dead. Did you hear about that? And they're like, oh, he raised somebody from the dead. And they're like, yeah, yeah. And then he went to this other town, and there was this guy named Bartimaeus, and he was blind. And if you look back, following us right now, walking with us, he used to be blind, Bartimaeus. But he's with us now. And so they are gaining ground. And there is energy. There is hope again. This is the king. This is the Messiah. Now, it was kind of split halfway because the delegation down here, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, those powers that be in, the, in, the, in Judaism at the time, they... They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah because they didn't like his message. His message was anti what they believed in. They believed in the temple. They believed in the Ten Commandments. They believed in their father Moses and Abraham. And all of these things, Jesus came and he was stirring up trouble to them. So they didn't want people to believe, but but Jesus was gaining ground. And he was doing signs, wonders, and miracles, and he's teaching in such a way they've never heard God being talked about like this before. And so it is kind of split. The powers that be are like, no, 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 no. But there is a group of people that's growing. And they, I just want you to know that they just didn't think it was for all. They didn't like that thought at all. They had, and, and it's easy to understand because they had been oppressed for 1,500 years. As a people, okay? So they had been discriminated against. They had been not the head, but always the tail. And they just were sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so uh, we, we, we find, we'll pick up in the story in Mark chapter 11, verse 8, um, that uh, Peter, he tells Mark, and Mark's writing this down. Peter's like, yeah, man, many people, they would spread their cloaks on the road. I mean, this this happens before they even get to Jerusalem. The people are convinced that this is a messianic moment and that Jesus is going to show up at the Passover and he is going to, in a way, somehow, some way, hopefully he'll go to the temple and he'll stand up in front of all the people and declare himself to be the Messiah. But what was happening is the people were starting to believe. And, and, and uh, Simon Peter tells Mark, he said, they were putting their cloaks on the road while others spread branches and, and that they had cut in the fields. And those who went ahead of those who followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means, translated to us, it would mean save us. They were looking at who was their new Moses, their new deliverer. And they were saying, save us. Not, they weren't thinking from their sins, or they weren't thinking what you've always been taught as evangelical believers. When they heard the word save, they were saying, save us from Rome. We're sick of this. Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they're like, this is the guy. And then it turns political because the next thing that they say is blessed is the 
coming kingdom of the world? No, no. Our father, David. So it was political. They anticipated that when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he is going to march up to that temple. And he is going to stand for them. And he's going to rally the troops. Years for years and years, they've been arguing amongst themselves over, you know, what, what are the laws that we're supposed to follow? You know, what is the, the written Torah and the oral Torah? And are we supposed to keep? I mean, they, for years and years, there was even division among them. But this Messiah, he will rally us. He will get us there. And, and, it, and it's exciting. And, and, and so what happens is, back to the map, as they finally get close, they go to this town called Bethany. And it is in Bethany that they, they just kind of, they, they hang out. And, uh, and what happens is he goes into Jerusalem with his disciples. And it's recorded in Mark chapter 11, verse 11. I can think that the disciples are anticipating he's going to do it. This is the day we finally got here to Jerusalem, right? And uh, it's recorded that Jesus went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, they're like, he's going to do it. He's going to, and he just left. And they walked two miles on foot back out to Bethany again. And they spend the night. And then the next day they wake up. And they're like, man, that was kind of strange. We thought it was all building up to this crescendo. And he was like, I am Messiah. And everybody's like, yeah, that's right down with Caesar. Woo. And he just, he got to the, the holy place. And he just left. Like, okay, tomorrow is going to be a better day. He's going to do it tomorrow, right? And so they, they walk from Bethany the two miles back into Jerusalem, and they're like, okay, he's going to do some really cool Messiah stuff today. He's going to, who knows what he's going to do. I mean, and signs, wonders, miracles. It's all, it's all available, people. And they're, the word spreading among the people. And he walks up to the temple again, and they're like, yes, yes. But this day, Jesus was not very messianic to them. In fact, you've probably heard this story before. Jesus made a huge mess. He got into a fight in the temple. He goes in the temple, and what does he do? He starts turning over tables. He starts grabbing the rope and slapping people in the face with it. It's crazy. And they're like, no, this is, this is not, the, this was supposed to be the messianic moment. And he, why is he acting like this? In fact, they're very concerned. His closest, they must have been thinking, he's making we're supposed to be making friends in high places when we get here. And all he's doing is making enemies with these people that are supposed to be the most powerful to our people. And uh, Peter tells Mark, it's recorded in Mark chapter 11, verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. After he did that, they began looking for a way to kill Jesus. They were so mad. They're like, we got to take this guy out. I mean, they had sent the delegation up north. When Jesus was teaching up here, and they came back, and they told him, this guy's causing trouble. He's saying, we're not going to have any jobs. He's saying, there's no more use for high priests, and there's no more use for the temple. That it's all changing. And so they're like, we got to kill this guy. And so then they feared, it says, uh, uh, Peter tells Mark, he goes, the, those people, the teachers of the law and the, the chief priests, they feared Jesus because the whole crowd was amazed. He had the majority. That was their problem. He had the crowd. He had the momentum. It says they were amazed at, at, at and, and this is what's crazy to me. At this point, they're not even amazed by his miracles anymore. It says he's amazed by his teaching. 
So when he did get to the temple, he, he, would, he would teach, and it's recorded several times in the, in the book of Mark. And so what happens is Jesus leaves the city. He doesn't do it that day, you know, the Messiah stuff. He really disappointed them. He spends the night outside the city, and the next day he comes back to the temple, and the leaders are ready for him this time, right? They're plotting to kill him, but they're like, we have to separate him from the majority, from the crowd. And so they spent all night trying to come up with these questions to, to get him to be tricked and to be trapped, to get him to say the wrong thing so that the crowd is like, whoa, 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 which Jesus was good at, at, at doing that, offending uh, really devout Jewish people who just wanted to hold on, not repent, not change their minds. And so this is what they, it's recorded in Mark chapter 12, verse 12. Then the chief priests and the teacher of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken a parable against them. So he shows up and they're talking to him. And at first they were like trying to, uh, try to butter him up a little bit. And then he says, hey, well, here's a parable. And it was like this. And then he makes them the villain of the parable, the, the chief priests in front of everybody. And embarrasses them. And, oh, they are so ticked off. And they wouldn't arrest him because, again, it says they were afraid of the crowd. And they left him and they went away. Okay? So Jesus continues to teach the crowd. He's on the temple mount now. So they regroup. And the Pharisees come back with a question. And they are like, we got him. We got him trapped. If he will just say one word to this question. This is the ultimate question. People are going to hate him one way or another of anything that he says. And I want to share this with you because it shows the brilliance of Jesus, okay? So they butter him up again, and they, they're like, Jesus, we're here again, you know? And, and, and they're like, well, we know that you are a man of great integrity, Jesus, and we know that you fear God and that you do not fear men and, and that you don't even care what men think about you. So we have a question for you, and it's recorded in Mark chapter 12, verse 14. They ask him this, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? To which us, who are Americans, living in 2020, read over that and we're just like, oh, okay, whatever. It's not a big deal. Because you don't understand the culture and you don't understand the people, everything that was going on back to these Jewish people. When they asked this question, everybody went, oh, it got quiet and you could hear a pin drop. Because there's some huge things. Let me share with you part of their culture and why this was such a, it was such a great question for them to ask, uh, to ask, to ask, because I'm about to say tax. What happened is this tax that was being put on them was a poll tax. And understand, the Jewish people are not able to govern themselves at this time. They're not a sovereign state. They're under the empire of Rome. They hate Rome. They hate all the things that they have to do. And it's, it's a poll tax that's being put on them that every single Judean has to pay this poll tax. And it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman or a child, even the men and even the women and even the children. And they didn't care if you were sick, if you had a job or not. You had to pay this tax, and these Jews hated it so much because it coincided, and, and Rome did this to rub it in their face. We've taken over, and we want you to remember when we took over, 
And every time you pay this tax, which is mandatory, you have no choice in it, against your will, it will remind you that you have been taken over. And so these people, these Jewish people, at that time when Jesus is asked this question, it is a trap because here's the trap. It gets him in trouble with the Jewish patriots who hate this tax if he answers it one way. And it also, if he says that you shouldn't pay the tax, there were spies that there were there from Rome that knew he was very powerful. And if he answers it the other way, he's in trouble with Rome. So he is trapped. They've got him backed into a corner. And remember this, that this is a time of pride for their people because it's the Passover season. So they're, even though they're oppressed, they are celebrating and kind of raising up hope that it's not always going to be this way because remember, we do this feast to remind us that God still loves us and that we're not alone and he can, if he did it then, he can do it again type of thing, right? And so all of a sudden, Jesus looks at them. He's in the trap. And he reaches into his pocket. Nothing there. And he reaches in this pocket. And he's like, hey, you know what? I don't have any money. But he says this. It's recorded in Mark chapter 12, verse 15. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, what you need to understand is that back then, Judean Jews were required to pay this poll tax with Roman coinage. I'll put it up on the screen for you. This is what one of those coins looked like the denarius was it was a lot of money it was equivalent of one day's wage to them and on the front was the image of Tiberius Caesar with the inscription that said the son of the divine Augustus which which they put it on there for a reason to let everybody know that they felt like he was a son of the gods every time a Jew had to look at this it was despicable to them because they believed in one God, not many gods. And definitely this guy was not their Messiah. He was not a son of God or the son of the God. And so they hated this coin. They hated this money. And then on the back of the coin, it was proclaimed that Tiberius Caesar was the high priest of the Roman religion. So everything about this coin, was it was offensive to the Jewish people. And so Jesus says, bring me that coin. But that wasn't the worst part. In Mark chapter 12, verse 16, it says they brought the coin to Jesus, which means that one of those leaders in the temple had one of those coins to bring to him. Jesus is, so think about this, Jesus is not holding the coin. The people that are trying to trick him and trap him, they're holding the coin in their hand. And what happens is this one of those guys had it in their pocket. Jesus asked him for the coin. He's not holding the coin. They're holding the coin in the palm of their hands. And this is what he says, whose image is on the coin? And at this point in the conversation, it's like Jesus says, checkmate, sucker. He's like, drop the mic, game over. Jesus wins because we are modern Americans living in two, you know, 2,000 years after. We don't understand their culture back then. And how huge this was and the impact of this moment. But get this. I guarantee you the crowd that was watching that they did. And here's why. It's because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are carrying 
a graven image in their pocket. And that's one of the big ten. Jesus trapped them. You are not allowed as a Jew to have any graven image. You see, Judean Jews had no images in their homes. They had no images in their temples. They had no images in their city. It was against the law, their own law, to have any kind of image at all. This was one of the big thou shalt not. And here they are, the Jewish leaders in the temple in front of the crowd holding this coinage that has an image. And to rub it in, Jesus continues, and here's what he says. He says, whose image is this and whose inscription is this? Now, I'll share with you a little fun fact from history. Five years before this event, Pilate had actually brought shields into the city of Jerusalem. And these, these shields, all of them had a picture of Tiberius Caesar. And there was an inscription that Jesus is talking about on those shields. They went mad. The Jewish people went mad. They stopped working. They stopped eating. They left all the crops in the field because they would rather die than have this image and to have this inscription. So that's what he's speaking to. And then even, even Pilate, who, who, you know, he was in politics at that time, but he was for Rome, even he relented and took those out because he saw it hurt them so much. And so Jesus is, he's talking about that. He says, whose image and whose inscription? And they replied back to him, Caesar's. And the point that Jesus is making is he's like, so let me get this straight. You guys are in the temple and you have Caesar's image in your pocket? He's like, well, then give back to Caesar what's Caesar's. And how about you give to God what is God? And you would have been able to hear a pin drop. Because masterfully, he beat them at their own game. Mark chapter 12, verse 17, it says, And they, even including the religious leaders who hated him, were amazed at him. So after this, Jesus and the 12 decide once again to leave the temple. They leave the city. And what happens next is extraordinary. And when I, when I really started, I don't know, about 10, 12 years ago to understand this passage in Mark chapter 13, it changed my life forever. I'll read it to you. Mark chapter 13, verse 1. And Jesus was leaving the temple. So all that altercation just took place. He's leaving. And one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, look at these massive stones. What a magnificent building. Talking about the temple. And I'm about to show you a picture in just a second. And what had happened was this is not the first temple that they had. That one was destroyed. It wasn't the second temple. That one had been destroyed. This is many temples later. And what happened is Herod, back in that day, had spent a ton of money building a temple for the Jews. And he built it. When he built it, he go study this. He built it earthquake-proof. That's why some of the stones were so big. How big, you ask me? I'm glad you asked. They weren't just 500 pounds. Some of these stones were 500 tons because it was built to be to be earthquake-proof. It was a magnificent, it was an extraordinary building. He says, do you see all these great buildings? In Mark chapter 13, verse 2. And they're like, yeah, that's what we've just pointed out. That's what we're looking at. He says this, Jesus says, not one stone here will be left on another. 
every single one of these stones will be thrown down. He's already taught them. We've gone over this in this series. He's already told them there's not going to be used for the temple anymore. And now he says it's going to be completely destroyed. And he didn't say they're going to fall down. He says they're going to be thrown down. At this moment, I, and you know what? I'll show you a picture of the temple. The, his own disciples must have thought he had kind of lost his mind a little bit. So this is, this is just the temple, okay? This is the temple, and this is on a 37-acre plaza. And Jesus is looking at them, and, and this, you can look up there, it's made of stone. Each brick is a stone. And he's, he's pointing to the bricks, and he's saying, not one of these stones will be left on top of the other. Now let me show you a picture of the plaza. Because Jesus says that this thing, so what we just saw is in the middle, okay? There is a plaza built up on a mount, elevated above everything, so there was a valley below it. And he says, and all of these stones will not be on top of each other. They'll be thrown down into the valley below. And they're thinking, man, this, when, when Herod built this, it's earthquake proof. Like we don't. I'm telling you, they didn't understand the ramifications of what Jesus was saying. And then Jesus says, says uh, when he's done talking, he takes off walking, and they follow him up to the Mount of Olives. Okay, so it's a mountain. It's a, it's a very high place. And what happens next is they're looking down into the valley below. They're looking at that right there. And the disciples were thinking, man, you know, what was he talking about? We really didn't, we didn't understand that, you know. And, and they ask him, Jesus, they're looking at this. And they say, what did you mean back there when you said not one stone is going to be left on the other? And then what Jesus says next is so amazing. In fact, it is the most remarkable, most unexpected, and most verifiable prophecy ever given by anyone at any time. It's recorded in Matthew. It's recorded in Mark. It's recorded in Luke. Jesus in this moment predicts the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And specifically, he predicts the destruction of the Jewish temple. He predicts it. And then go read, the, go read that whole chapter. He goes into great detail of what is actually going to happen. And sure enough, guys, it's recorded in history 40 years later, on August the 6th, in the year 70, because Jesus said, and this will happen at the end of that chapter in verse 30, he says, and this will happen in this generation. 40 years later, on August the 6th, in year 70 AD, the Roman legion, who he called the, um, the uh, what is it, abomination of desolation, the Roman legion, that's what he called it, abomination of desolation, went through the outer walls. There was a war happening, and they tore down the walls. They were so angry. They ran into the temple. They set fire. The Roman legion set fire to everything that would burn. And in this catastrophe, 1.1 million Jews, men, women, and children, were slaughtered and killed. 1.1 million. Then the aftermath, to add insult to injury, Titus, who was leading the Roman legion at the time, he, the Jews that are left over, he makes them into slaves, and he makes their own people 
tear down each stone by stone, and they were all thrown into the valley below. It happened just like Jesus said. In fact, if you were to go visit Jerusalem today, if you were to visit where the temple was, you can actually see those stones that are laying in the valley. What Jesus predicted is unrealistic and unimaginable at the time. It actually came to true, and I don't have time to go into it today, but this, this passage of Scripture was misinterpreted to me for years and years, and it was told that these things that Jesus said were going to happen in my future. Jesus, listen, Jesus wasn't talking to me. He was talking to them, and he said, it's going to happen in your future, but it's going to happen within this generation, which that's my past. It happened, right? So, it was just amazing. Why is this important? Because Jesus had said earlier, something greater than the temple is here. And that offended a lot of people. And there will come a time when the temple will be no longer necessary. It will be obsolete. And then he, he predicted the destruction of it. Very, Just go read the whole chapter. It's amazing. You see, something greater than the temple had arrived. Amen? The old was passing away. The new had come. The kingdom of God was near, and Jesus needed them now to shift their Jewish mindsets. Not us. It's not us that need to repent. He was speaking to them to repent, to change their Jewish mindset, and then believe, accept what he was telling them. Something new had come, and there was new. It was better. The new was portable. And the most significant thing for you and me today is that something would be, would, that something that was going to happen was going to make you and the you beside you every bit as sacred as the temple of Jerusalem, which is awesome. What was about to take place was the Spirit of God was about to now just be with his people, but in his people, inhabit his people. And as the Apostle Paul would say it much, much later, but he did say it, that we would become walking temples. Amen? Amen. So the time had come. The kingdom of God had, in fact, come near. All that was left was for the king to ratify his new arrangement with himself and mankind and that's kind of what they were hoping that he was going to do some Messiah stuff. So here's what happens next. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now the Passover. Everybody say Passover. That's the reason all the Jewish people had come to Jerusalem, and that's, they were there to celebrate that. The Passover and the Festival of Unleavened Breads were only two days away. And once again, they're back outside the city. They're not in Jerusalem anymore. And his disciples come to him and they say, Master, where do you want us to go make preparations for you and us to eat this Passover meal? We do it every year together. It's awesome. And this is something that's so sacred and so beautiful to our people and our culture. What do you want us to do? And Jesus, they didn't know this, but he had already made some secret arrangements and where they were going to be able to do this. And so he tells them, go into the city and you're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Find him, follow that man. He's going to take you to the place where we're going to celebrate the Passover. Now, you may think, wow, there's, there's so many hundreds of thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem at that time. How are they going to find the man carrying the, the jar of water? That seems kind of weird, right? Well, back in their culture in that day, only women carried the jars of water. So it really did stand out when they saw a man carrying a jar of water. They found him, and they went, and it says this. Um, it's recorded in Mark chapter 14, when evening came. That's important. When evening came, why when evening came? Because if Jesus showed up in the daylight, crowds just, and he couldn't do anything, right? So when it was safe for him, when evening came, 
Jesus arrived with the 12. And Peter, I'm not sure, uh, or I'm sure that he thought to himself, okay, this is it. It's the Passover meal. We're all together. He's going to do some really cool Messiah stuff. And as it turns out, it was it. But it wasn't the it that Peter and the apostles were expecting. So here's what happens. While they were eating the Passover meal, it's recorded in Mark chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread. This was normal. Jesus did this every year with them. He was their rabbi. So we don't do this, but they always did this. And it was so sacred and so holy. And, and, and it, like I said, it was just, uh, there was a lot of reverence. There was a lot of being thankful. You see, you know, you know, you see y'all, y'all catch it with me, right? So he says, <laughs> when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and he gave it to the disciples. And they're like, yeah, man, this is awesome. We're so thankful. We're so reverent. And he said, take it. And as they're about to put the bread in their mouth, he said, this is my body. What did he just say? Disciples look at each other and like, this can't be. This is sacrilegious. You, we believe that he's Messiah, but not even the Messiah can say stuff like this. They, they look at each other and they start saying, don't let this get out of this room. Because they will kill him for sure. He's making the Passover about him. He's lost his mind. And so they start eating it. But it's kind of like, this is so sacrilegious. This is so weird. Like, I don't know if y'all have ever read, read this passage like this, but this is what was really happening. And then he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, so they would be like, yes, the cup and the, the wine represented the blood, all that was poured over the doorpost. If y'all remember the story? about Moses, and they poured, and, and it was, it represented deliverance, and it was, it was that sacrifice, and it was Moses, and it was all about God, and, and their people, and it was exciting, and Jesus says this craziness, he took the cup when he given thanks, like, thank you God for always being our deliverer, we love you, he gave it to them, he drank, and then he says this, by the way, this is my blood, Listen, if a high priest, a Sadducee, a Pharisee, a devout Jew would have been there that didn't have a relationship with him like the disciples did, they would have, this happened several times when Jesus would speak. They would rent, they would tear their garments. They would gnash their teeth at him. At one point, they tried to grab him and throw him off a cliff. This was, this was so far out there for him to say, this, this is, a, and he says, in my blood, in, of the covenant. And then they're like, we only have one covenant. And that was made by, see, we look as Jesus as our end all be all. They looked at Moses as that. So it would be like me coming to you guys today and saying, everything that Jesus did on the cross, that's me. So I'm going to give you all some bread. You remember his body that's so reverent to you? That was my body. He didn't do that. I did that. And then I would give you some wine, and I would say, now partake of the cup. And you're like, yeah, Jesus, for our sins and amazing. And I go, no, no, no. Kevin, praise Kevin. 
what would y'all do? Y'all would get up and walk out of this place, gnashing your teeth like, this guy is crazy. Get him some medicine. He's lost his mind. Y'all, do y'all see what was happening? This was craziness that he was saying. At this point, the disciples must have thought, he, you've got to be kidding me. We got here. He's burned all of our bridges with the leaders. And now to us, he's saying that he's making a new covenant. Only God can make a covenant. Only God can establish a covenant. And all of this popularly must be finally getting to his head. We can't let anybody know about this. He says, and then to add insult to injury, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the Jews. Is that what he said? No. For everyone. It was something so mind-blowing to them. To which they must have thought, Oh, did we find the right guy? Because it's supposed to be about us. He's a Jew. It can't be for many. It can't be for all. Jesus, you came to your own people. This is political. This is about us and only us. You came to establish our people back on top. This is only for us. This can't be for our enemies, too? Jehovah loves Caesar? No. 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 I hope you're starting to understand why every time when Jesus went from city to city, speaking to Jews under the law over 2,000 years ago, he would say, repent. Metanoia. Change your mind. He was saying God is doing something new, and to understand it, you really have to embrace it, and you have to completely change your mindset of everything, not to us, but to them, of everything that you've ever thought you knew about the kingdom. No longer is it going to be about the temple. Guys, that's coming down. No longer is it going to be about us and high priests making sacrifices. That is all coming to an end. He says the kingdom has come. The new covenant is here. Change your mindset. Repent and believe this good news. As it turns out, it would be days and and for some men in the room, it would be weeks before they understand the significance of Jesus' word at that Passover meal. What was clear is that something was up and while they were delighted at the fact that they were with They were in the city with their fellow Jews at the Passover celebration and really believing that he was going to be close to declaring himself Messiah in front of everybody. They noticed that Jesus seemed really disturbed. Something was weird. Jesus was troubled. And so after they sang a hymn together, they left that room and they went... to the Garden of Gethsemane, and that's where we hear of Jesus praying, crying out to his Father, so disturbed and so full of the pressure of the moment, he starts to sweat blood, 
And all of a sudden they hear a, a disturbance around them coming from the trees. And they, they turn around and in the night there's men with torches coming right at them. And what was so crazy is just moments before when they were all celebrating, they, the 12 were so close. They were closer than brothers. They had done life together for three years. And they were devout Jews. I mean, they really, they, they really thought it was political. And one of them so much, Judas, he broke off from them. Because he kept talking about, I'm going to die, and this thing is all going to change. And he's like, it's not supposed to be about that. It's supposed to be about us winning a war against Rome. We need you to be the voice. We need you to be, and when Judas had lost hope, he, he went to the other side. And here's the brother leading with the first torch, saying, he's over here. It must have been such a, 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 just a punch in the gut. Peter reacts violently. He's like, Mark, write this down. I grabbed the closest sword I could find. Personally, I believe that he was trying to kill Judas. He was aiming for Judas, and he was swinging as hard as he could, and that guy ducked, and he caught another guy's ear and nicked it off. And it's recorded... In Mark chapter 14, verse 48, Jesus is like, stop, stop, wait, 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 wait. Am I leading a rebellion that you have come to me with swords and clubs to capture me? He was saying, wait a minute, I'm not a fugitive from the law. I've not been hiding from you. In fact, all week long it's recorded. He says, every day I was with you. I was teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me in public. And then Peter makes a decision that he will regret for the rest of his life. Because for the first time in his life, his expectations of Jesus and his experience with Jesus didn't line up. And suddenly there's a gap between what he expected Jesus to do and who Jesus was. And now what he's experiencing. And at that moment, Peter lost all hope. And I think when he made this next statement to John Mark, Mark looks at him and he picks up whatever he's writing with and he says, Peter, are you sure? Are you sure you want me to include that in this document? And Peter probably with tears in his eyes said, yes, Mark. Because it happened. I lost all hope. You got to write this down, Mark. It's recorded in Mark, verse 14, verse 15. We all deserted him. And we ran away. All of us. We fled in their minds. It was over. How could this be? Clearly, he's not who he said he was. He was supposed to go to the temple and stand up and rally the troops. And now, behind closed doors... He's being arrested, and he is going to be killed. He's no king. He's, he's no Messiah. There's not going to be a kingdom. The kingdom is not near. The kingdom is not now. We were sold a bill of goods. 
left. It was in this moment when his faith was replaced by fear. And just like I said earlier, it's when those circumstances start to deteriorate in our, our lives. That's when our faith deteriorates. I'm going to ask the, the band to come up and help me close. It is just human nature, isn't it? That when our experiences of life start to change, that we revert to being these people who are led by fear. I know I can sure relate to Peter and his personal experience, just like Peter in those moments when life hits hard, just like, guys, 2020 has hit us so hard. Like Peter, we become fortune tellers. And if Peter could somehow talk to us living in 2020, I think Peter would say to us, guys, I understand. I've been there. I've done that. I've lived it. I can totally relate to what you're going through. And that's why I made sure that Mark wrote it down. You need to know that we all get in those places. That's, that's why I put it in this document. You see, in the moment when everything went dark for Simon Peter and suddenly his future went dark and suddenly he went from being this leader and follower of this great popular rabbi now to being a fugitive from the law, an outlaw. He's like, I remembered what happened to me. I started to believe a lie. And when I believed that lie, I lost all hope. And to be completely transparent, just like everybody else, I deserted Jesus. Just like Judas. And Peter would say, and you need to know that that was the second biggest mistake of my life that led to the biggest mistake and the greatest regret of my whole life because everything that I saw and everything that I felt in that moment when circumstances hit me led me to a conclusion of the fact that God is not near. And Peter would continue to say, but friends, that was a lie that I believed because it's just not true. Opposite is true. He was near. Come on, somebody. God is near, especially in those dark moments of life. Looking back, Peter would say, I realize he was always with me. He never left me. He was always with us. And I think Peter would say to us today, don't do what I did. Don't believe the lie. Don't cut and run. Don't abandon your Savior. Don't lose hope and abandon your journey of faith. Peter would say, I would give anything to go back to that day and relive that in a different way. But something that's very fascinating to me is that the story doesn't stop there. He's like, include that part, Mark. But you got to tell the end. Because when we thought all hope was lost and God was not near, then God. Then God. He always has the last part of the story because the very men who abandoned Jesus, guys, 
the very men who were so afraid and left Jesus and they were suddenly in fear for their future, those are the same men who would spend the rest of their lives and risk their lives and even lose their lives ensuring that you and I would know that God is near. That you are not far. And because of what happens next in the story, I want you all to show up next week because it's very, it's a very celebrating